perfection. to Last Refuge of the Incompetent. I'm Gull. I'm Moses. I'm Ted. Ted, don't don't <laughs> roll your eyes at me. This is yeah, why we, we shouldn't do video calls. Rolling. I if we didn't do video calls, I would constantly be talking over you guys. <laughs> <laughs> More than I already do. <laughs> uh yeah, what's our theme this week, uh Moshe? Uh this week we're talking about the works of Kurt Vonnegut. His entire oeuvre, or duvet, <laughs> as, as, a, as we decided off-screen. Yeah, he's uh, most famous for Cat's Cradle and Slaughterhouse-Five, two great novels that are... There are probably already a lot of podcasts about those, so we're going to talk about some of his other works. Uh, short stories, Harrison Bergeron, and its several strange film adaptations. Galapagos is the novel we decided to... You know, we've got to go... We've got to pick the B-sides. We can't just <laughs> We're here to uncover the secret, all of Kurt's secrets. Yeah, uh, one Kurt of the most Vonnegut. famous writers in yeah. American writers of all time. We're here to uncover his secrets. <laughs> yeah, we're really, no one else is talking about Galapagos, let me tell you. Uh, what else? We have a lot, he's done a lot of interviews, there's a lot of recordings of him talking, so we'll play a few clips. Right. I... Do any ideas about music? The only thing I found, and it may not be, I listened to about five seconds of it, but there's some Canadian band <laughs> called The Peptides. In 2019, they wrote a 10-song collection called Galapagos Volume 1 and is entirely inspired by the themes and characters in Galapagos. Mm. So maybe one of those 10 songs is good? <laughs> Check it out. This morning, I suddenly had this vague memory that he was on some album that some band did. Uh, like, I don't know if he did, like, spoken word interludes or something. But I haven't been able to find it so far, so I might be thinking of a different author. <laughs> do you know what his most famous uh, cameo is? Because I do. I do it, as well, but do you want to say it? <laughs> the 1968 film Back to School. Oh, yeah. <laughs> With Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah. Wait, 68? 86. Oh! <laughs> I'm reading 86. it. 86. <laughs> that would be... I mean, it would be really weird if he was in a Rodney, a yeah. young Rodney Dangerfield <laughs> film before he was really famous. Just um, like on a, a Catskill circuit. Uh, <laughs> you might hear... Uh, there's... There's a lot of film adaptations of his work, so there might be some clippets. Clippets. I just had some coffee. I was on a, uh, to our listener, I was on a lake all day, so I am sun-stroked. <laughs> sun-caressed. Sun-caressed. Deepest pool of deepest blue shall swim to you. Morning never waits for you. Shall wait for you and the stars.
You're listening to the podcast edit of Last Refuge of the Incompetent. If you'd like to listen to the full show with all the music kept in, please check out our website, lastrefugepod.com, for more information. Or search Last Refuge of the Incompetent on mixcloud.com. Enjoy the rest of the show! So you're you're there, you're listening to this radio show, and you're asking yourself, who is this guy they're talking about, Kurt Vonnegut? I've never heard of him in my (laughs) entire life. Well, if you're you're like most of our listeners, you never graduated from high school, (laughs) (laughs) have no contact with the work of Kurt Vonnegut Mm -hmm. at any point. That's exactly correct. That is who our listeners are. Uh, Anyway, he was a guy. He was born very wealthy, and there's some very great clips or sound bites of him talking about being born wealthy in 1922 in Indianapolis, Indiana. And uh, his father was a very prominent architect. His grandfather was a prominent architect. And he was the youngest of three children. But then, wah, 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 fortunes in the family changed dramatically during the Depression, uh, the architectural business of his dad's disappeared. He had to sell the family home. They left private school. Oh, no. And because these things radically changed in their lives, uh, there is some pretty serious mental illness in his family. So his his father virtually gave up on his life. His mom became addicted to alcohol and prescriptions, drugs, and um, there's this like lifelong pessimism that's really rooted in this whole sense of like you know, what it means to be born and what he calls, like, to have access to, to slurp from the from the money river, right? That's right, Moses? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. from, uh, God bless you, Mr. Rosewater. That's his whole idea of, you know, the rich and the poor. It's just some people are just born on the shore of a great river of money. Yeah. And they can't imagine no one being able to reach that shore. Right. And the multitudes of humans just will never be able to access it. Yeah, they don't even know that they live on this money river. Yeah, so all of this, like, American value... Is is Indianapolis in the middle of the country? I mean, is it it's Midwestern? Indiana. It's in Indiana, um, which is... Yeah. Again, I ask you one more time. <laughs> <laughs> in one interview, he characterized Indianapolis as being the largest city in the world that's not on a navigable waterway. He says it gives it a character unlike any other city. That yeah. You can't float around it. <laughs> but yeah, I think Indiana is culturally Midwestern. It's not right. in the geographic middle of the country. Great. So this Midwestern <laughs> idealism he writes about. Oh, I don't know geography. <laughs> so, and I don't feel bad about it. Because I'm American. All right. Um, so yeah, and also another big thing that really affected him um, going forward was... He was 16 when World War II broke out. He uh, entered the army when he was 20, 
shipped off to Europe and almost immediately was captured by the Germans in the Battle of the Bulge. And he was a POW in Dresden. And that really, that yeah, essentially... was firebombs. Yeah. Was yep. Underneath, under the ground, underneath the slaughterhouse. Yep. Him and his fellow... Yeah. And, uh, you know, his job during that time was to gather up and burn the remains of the dead. And his time and his experience there led him to write Slaughterhouse Five, which you've probably read if you went to an American high school. Although he didn't get around to it for a while. Like, I think it was his fifth novel or fourth, maybe. He started out writing short stories and he was he worked at an ad agency. And his mother also passed, died, and that really affected him. She she uh, committed suicide by a drug overdose in 1944. Oh, I think his first novel is Player Piano, which was published yeah. in 19, 1952. Have you, have you read that, Moses? I haven't read it. Yeah, I've read that one. It's good. It's not very sci-fi-ish, uh, but we can still talk about it. Uh, and it was inspired by his time at uh, General Electric. That's who he was kind of a publicist writer for uh, and so he hung out with a lot of scientists and they were doing some you know interesting scientific work on in- efficiency and automation and so player piano is about that it's about just people being put out of work by the wonders of technology and mm-hmm. uh, yeah this is a big labor uprising in the book it's pretty good i think they kind of sneak that in into that tv movie adaptation of harrison bergeron as well yeah um, that becomes a a, a factor in, in the Harrison yeah not in his story Harrison Bergeron but in the movie version with Sean Astin that's right same one <laughs> himself uh, yeah they reference uh, in 2018 uh, unemployment was at 85% because of auto- automation so everyone rose up and got violent yeah it the, so and it the movie was adapted in what nine. 19- 95. 95, yeah. Yeah, he's, uh, he then, he wrote, I think his first sci-fi epic was The Sirens of Titan, and then he wrote a spy novel, Mother Night, um, and then... Yeah, I guess that's a spy novel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a lot of people will have, be familiar with Cat's Cradle, and then uh, one of my favorite books is God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. I think that's a beautiful book, which is not, it's not a sci-fi book, but I would recommend that. And then he wrote, in 1969, Slaughterhouse-Five. I'll say that Sirens of Titan, uh, I really like, but it, it's very much the, like, 50s-style pulp sci-fi. Like, it has a guy in a rocket ship bouncing around the solar system, kind of crazily, adventure novel style. But it has all these great Kurt Vonnegut twists about the nature of the universe being chaotic and uncarried towards human feelings. Yeah, Sirens of Titan feels like 50s pulp sci-fi in a way that a lot of his early short stories feel as well. Um, yeah. And then his later works don't. Um, yeah. Uh, 80s and 90s Monica was like a big uh, nuclear arms control dude and protection of the Earth's biosphere and preservation of constitutional freedoms. Um, and his last novel is Timequake. Have you read that, Moses? Yeah, that one is... I think the premise of that novel is that he wrote it on very tiny pieces of paper, like fortune cookie, fortune-sized <laughs> snippets and pieced together. It definitely feels pretty fragmented. 
he also wrote a bunch of essays towards that time that were collected called into a book called A Man Without a Country. Says says the thing that all boomers are saying now. We could have saved the world, but we were just too damn lazy. Thanks, parents. <laughs> <laughs> and he passed away in April of 11th, 2007. He fell um, on the steps of his New York brownstone. And he was one of the most famous American writers. Like, a lot of his works are pretty sort of experimental structurally, but they don't necessarily... They're sort of more experimental than they seem, than they feel at first, just because his prose is so simple. Often, um, you don't even... Like, it's easy to get through, so you don't even realize how kind of... um, Yeah, like metatextual and experimental the the structure itself is his prose is so lovely it's so fun to read Vonnegut yeah he's so funny yeah yeah sometimes even just reading these interviews with him he's just so funny yeah like uh, uh you know there are a couple things I felt like bringing up one of them is that he was good friends with uh, Isaac Asimov and the other sci-fi writers of around then uh, and he gave a eulogy at Isaac Asimov's funeral and both of them are very you know openly declared to be uh, secular humanists atheists uh, and so he was at Isaac Asimov's funeral he's talking to like the entire American science fiction author crew and he opens it up by saying well, Isaac's up in heaven looking down at us now. <laughs> and it just brings down the house, like the funniest possible thing you could say at Isaac Asimov's funeral. <laughs> looking down at us and smiling. There's an interview I found. It's like him and George, Joyce Carol Oates. He's like talking about all the ills of humanity and she's like, and who's the person responsible for doing all that? And I, I, I think he's being facetious and making a joke. Likely. Yeah, and he's like, because she's trying to say like men are doing all that stuff, and uh, and he's like, well, women are bad at science. I didn't. I didn't send it to Ted just in case. Just in case it would be construed construed as not being facetious, Um, because he's dry and he doesn't say like. Just kidding, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's structured like a joke. That's a that's a (laughs) punchline. Yeah. Yeah, there are a few. Maybe I. Can we start talking about Harrison Bergeron now? Yeah. Yeah, 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 we can uh, we can skip around. Yeah. So the that's a it's a very short story. It's like you know two three pages, but it's good. It's a nice, powerful one, powerful imagery. It's about a future in in the twenty eighty one where everyone is equal. It is mandated that everyone is equal, and the way they figured this out is uh, if anybody is too good at something, they just give them a bunch of handicaps. You know, throw a bunch of sandbags on the strong and put trans receivers in people's ears that blast loud sounds. Uh, if you're too smart, then we'll just scatter your thoughts every so often. And so it's a funny sci-fi premise. Oh, yeah. What year was this one written? It was in Welcome to the Monkey House, the short story collection. Anyway, so that the, the book is about just uh, a guy who's too strong and, and tries to set himself free of all these constraints. And it's like, a, in a way, the, it's kind of like a poem. It's a great read. I recommend it. But it's also, it doesn't like feel that great right 
now in today's world where you know, we feel like we're living in a right-wing fascist society, and then this story's like, well, what if there was a left-wing fascist society? Mm. What would that look like? It just doesn't mm. feel like a fair comparison. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. 1961 is... 61, yeah. I'm not sure if I read it as left-wing fascism more. I read it as, like, he's just mad at dumb people. <laughs> Do yeah, you know what I, mean? I think that's that is is what he's really meaning, and I it's yeah. I brought this up because of that joke he made with Joyce, Joyce Carol Oates. And sometimes <laughs> it's hard to tell exactly where he's where in what good faith are these ideas coming from. But you know, from everything else he's ever written, I give him the benefit of the doubt. He's Kurt freaking Vonnegut, right? Right. Yeah, Harrison Bergeron feels. Almost kind of hallucinatory, especially when, like, Harrison Bergeron himself just bursts onto the (laughs) stage seven feet tall, like, yelling about how he's a golden god. Yeah. 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 Floating into flying. (laughs) Yeah. Levitating. Yeah, they levitate. Yeah. Yes. It almost feels closer to, like, Philip K. Dick than a lot of uh, Vonnegut's other works. But, yeah, I don't know if it works or in what way it works as, like political satire or anything um, yeah it's it's less effective as that i feel it is i think it's more like oh it's the 60s so it's not really a, t- a time when people were giving out like participation medals do you know what i mean like that's people make fun of like the generation that we grew up in as the soft generation you get you get an award for anything yeah Maybe I'm thinking, yeah, if someone wrote that story today, then I would immediately say, go to hell. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah. It fits, it seems to fit more with the kind of, like, stereotypically 1950s conformism and boredom that a lot of his work seems to be a reaction to. And certainly, like, in the way, that's certainly, like, the Vonnegut, I think, the aspect of Vonnegut, I think that was kind of accepted as being part of the counterculture. Um, and that's like, that's the, the high school Vonnegut, like the Vonnegut thing yeah. adapted into the high school canon. The like, don't just be a conformist. Like, yeah. Um, well, the film is definitely like very heavy handed. Yeah, that. Yes. The 1995 the one- Samwise Gamgee film. Yeah. Also Christopher Plummer. Um, yes, yeah. he's Somehow so good at it. There's like, so many surprisingly good. Andrea Andrea Martin, right? Is one of the yeah, so. the the little woman. Yes. Yeah. She, she a lot I think it must have been filmed in, in Canada because there's a lot of Canadian actors in it and somebody has a Canadian accent. Eugene Levy uh, has a, a oh, yeah. little role as the, uh, the American US's president. president. <laughs> yeah, um, and it is like he's kind of doing Trump uh, <laughs> yeah. twenty years beforehand. Yeah, um, the one thing that rubbed me the wrong way about it, and and it's just a thing that bothers me. This whole like this American like ideal of like you are special so go be special and it's like we're nobody's special nobody's special everybody just calm down <laughs> we need a little bit more in uh collectivism in our society gall's opinions <laughs> yeah no that that aligns you know uh pretty pretty well with 
Kurt Vonnegut's idea of a good society, one where there, there there's always someone you can reach out to for help. Yeah, he talks about that. Yeah, it's actually like a. I, I wasn't expecting him because he seems like a curmudgeon and old, old. What's the word? People, an old man that doesn't want people around. There's a word yeah, for curmudgeon. That. <laughs> Film adaptation is is pretty. I mean, they take a four page short story and they try to make an hour and a half movie out of the premise, and so they just throw away a lot of stuff and add a. It's a. It's not a Vonnegut story. The the movie. It's still, you know, it's still fine. It's still good. Uh, yeah. but it's kind of yeah cheesy and heavy handed in other ways. The guy who wrote the screenplay never worked on any other film <laughs> or television project, as far as I could tell from IMDb, but. There's definitely, I couldn't tell if if there's no subtlety in the dialogue intentionally, because I kind of liked it, because it was weird. It was yeah. so weird, the way these people being like, oh yeah, America in the 1950s, or like they make a reference to the 90s at some point, they're like, oh yeah, that yeah. was a fad in the 90s. They made two funny <laughs> jokes about that, yeah, one was that we styled this in a, the new age style, just popular for about a week in the 1990s. <laughs> yeah, and, and then Sean Astin's like, oh, I can see why. <laughs> yeah, and they give him, uh, oh yeah, so the premise of the movie is that Harrison Bergeron is not a a giant superhuman. Instead, he's just a, a meek guy who's uh, Sean Astin, Rudy, uh, who's just uh, really smart, and uh, his intelligence uh, hampering devices don't work, and he's just too smart for everyone. Mm-hmm. And he feels really bad about being too smart. He's like, oh, I just want to fit in and be normal with everyone else. Uh, but then he gets inducted into the secret smart society that actually runs the world, or America. Yeah, to, uh, make, it, to make it feature length, they sort of just crossed it over with um, Brave New World. Mm, yeah, yeah, uh, and then at some so they give him all the old forbidden uh, uh, entertainment and knowledge <laughs> that no one is allowed to know. And he says, at one point, he says, "Who was that old guy playing King Lear?" And the other one said, "Oh, Macaulay Culkin." <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's another prediction I hope will come true. Like, yeah. Yeah. Nail it. One of the things that Macaulay Culkin these days, he could do King Lear right now. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, oh, Moses. That <laughs> oh, was mean, but he's a great guy. <laughs> he's 40. There, okay, so I used to be really into Buster Keaton, and I had like read all these books about him. And one of the things everybody talks about that's like into Buster Keaton, because it's like, it makes you special if you like Buster Keaton and not Charlie <laughs> <Yeah>. Chaplin. <laughs> They're always like, you know, Buster Keaton was famous for not for for explicitly going to the studios and being like i'm making smart comedies and 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 it's not for the masses um they you could tell that screenwriter was also a big (laughs) big buster keaton nerd because he like features heavily yeah this is the forbidden uh entertainment that's too good to give out to the masses buster keaton Jazz. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> White jazz yeah. saxophonist. Um. Weirdest scene. Just shot. This is them trying to make the movie long. It's just Sean Astin in this in the TV studio, like conducting music. <laughs> he's, he's frantically conducting and then like drinking from a giant water bottle. And then they I, cut oh, to yeah, Christopher Plummer kind of looking like, my God, he's actually doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's so long. <laughs> it's also very unclear. Like, yes, this is a part of the movie where 
Sean Astin, I mean Harrison Bergeron, I mean Sam Wines, Gamgee, Rebels, takes over the TV studio to broadcast all of Forbidden Entertainment to everyone. So he locks himself in the studio, and which it seems like it's just 12 hours, but he's got a 5 o'clock shadow by the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also, like, it, it felt like, you know, those like a, a, romant, a man, romantic comedy where they want to make it longer so they put in a shopping montage scene. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. that's what it felt like. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> anyway, I would recommend it. It's a fun movie. <laughs> if yeah, it was still it. worth watching. If you can uh, find it. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the kind of like the bit of commentary that is at the end of the movie that is not in the story at all is that he successfully, like, takes over this TV studio and shows all the forbidden culture, and then he finds it at the end, like, oh, yeah, everybody put back their uh, res- their handicaps on after it was over. Like, only 1% of the population cared at all. Yeah. For everyone else, it was just TV. <laughs> yeah, which is the kind of the moral of the short story, too. Like, it didn't yeah, really matter. Yeah, they both some real downers. <laughs> yeah. It was, I was reading up on it a bit, and, like, the original short story is obviously kind of ambiguous, necessarily, because it's so short. Apparently some people have interpreted it as being kind of making fun of American ideas of what, like, Soviet equality was like. Um, like, everybody oh. must be literally equal in all ways. Yeah. And I don't know, like, I mean, I don't know if he's talked about what his idea was. I don't think the text itself necessarily supports that. But, um, I mean, the, the film adaptation kind of does feel more like this is what happens when you, like, added... This is what you would get if you added a strong egalitarian ethos to, like, the American ethos of competition. Mm. It's like, we still have to be competing about everything, but we also have to be equal, so uh, we're gonna, like, jury-rig a level playing field. Yeah, they still have sports. Mm-hmm. Professional sports. Yeah. They're just And everyone, at some boring. point... Yeah. <laughs> at some point, one of the characters says, like, you should still try as hard as you can, because then we'll know how much to handicap you. Yeah. Um, yeah, they still have this weird ethos of com- competing in everything through society because, like, that's how you be American or whatever. Um, but then there is an am- yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, uh, sorry. I was reaching the point of repeating myself. Oh, I should be cut off now. <laughs> <laughs> there was an am- there is an ambiguous ending in the movie as well because lo and behold, his son and another smart boy in the neighborhood are watching apparently apparently people recorded that broadcast somehow and they're watching it with without their receivers on over and over again like a boot like a bootleg tape <laughs> yeah 1995's harrison riverin <laughs> yeah check it out why not do you think it's on hbo max who knows it's a mess out there So let's pivot a little bit to just talking about some more short stories in Welcome to the Mon- Welcome Welcome to the Monkey House. Welcome to the Monkey House are the words I'm trying to say. <laughs> Good, <laughs> great job, Gal. Monkey House, we got lots of leaps. So I read all of those. They're Stellar all really, sh- they're all really short. 
uh, I read them all at once, and I've immediately forgotten about them. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what did I? So I the Yufio question, Epicac, yeah, and, and report on the Barnhouse effect. Yeah, so I went through all these short stories and picked out my favorites. Yeah, I picked those three. One of them, I think, uh, the Yufio question was one that I read out loud on the back on my radio, KCSB radio show. Oh, that's. Is that the computer? No. Epicac is the computer. Epicac's the computer. What's the UFO question? Oh, the UFO question is the weird machine, right? Guy, yeah, he he accidentally tunes into a cosmic wavelength on his, you know, radio receiver uh, and rebroadcasts a wavelength that immediately causes a a physical response of just relaxation and euphoria in everyone who's within transmission distance. Uh, Disastrously euphoric because people just space out and and bliss out and accidentally, you know, catch their house catches on fire and stuff like that. It's definitely like a, a like a heroin or like a like it has similarities to like. Oh yeah, it's it's like an. I think even in the story they say it's like I walked into an opium den when he just yeah. sees everyone blissed out on the UFO. Yeah. But it's a, it's, it's so funny that <laughs> way it's written. <laughs> and the Epicac one is a joke computer. So the old uh, development computer in the forties, like as computers are being invented was called um ENIAC. ENIAC. and i always confuse it because isaac asimov also wrote a bunch of in like irobot in his fictional history of, com- of computers he has the like, the multivac and the univac <laughs> and then the real and the real one was called the ENIAC, and then there's another one real or fictional called the maniac anyway <laughs> so isaac asimov's fake one is called ipecac which is you know the syrup you take if you need to throw up and that's just about a, a computer that's so advanced and it what it starts falling in love with one of the operators and writes some poetry for it. It's like it's it's a Cerno Bergerac meets AI. (laughs) Yeah, short story. That's a nice sweet. It's literally what it is. (laughs) Yeah, it's It's short and sweet. I picked all these short and sweet ones because they're funny and yeah, it's not like there's a lot of political weight to them or even spiritual weight to them. They're just nice stories. (laughs) I mean, in a in the uh, what it. Barnhouse effect, you get your, you know, your anti-war pacifist on again, uh, definitely. What's that one again? It's uh, the one with a professor, um, like, develops psychokinetic powers. Oh, yeah. Um, and the military tests him to, like, see if he can take down, like, fleets of ships and yeah. uh, intercept bombs in midair. And then once he... Um, once it's Doesn't. proven he can, he disappears, and the author is the person who's writing the story. Um, years later, uh, reveals that he's been like slowly destroying all of the world's weapons spot- stockpiles yeah. from a hidden location using these psychic powers. That one was my favorite. I think very pacifist. The 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 scientist is like writes to the um, U.S. government, and he's like, I got this special power to come check it out, and they show up, and he's like, so I can, like, you know, make drought, I can move clouds to places where there are drought, and so people, so fa- there isn't famine anymore, and they're like, no, 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 we need you to blow up a submarine. Yeah. yeah like, so- well, we don't tell you your scientist business, so would you <laughs> yeah. tell us our international relations business? Yeah. <laughs> We're experts, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah in, uh, in one of the interviews that I guess we'll link to, it was either the Playboy interview or the BBC one. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut Jr. talks about 
how when he used to work at GE, he worked with a lot of scientists, and he witnessed the big change in uh, kind of the stereotype of scientists. Like there's for a long time there was the academic stereotype of the you know the absent-minded professor who's a genius in his field and a fool everywhere else, but head in the clouds type of scientist who doesn't really care about the world outside of his one subject. And the interviewer says, like, oh, did that change with, like, the atomic bomb? Or is clear that scientific inventions could be so abused or used for such horrors? And he says, no, even after that, most scientists still kind of retain this old thing. But uh, what I've noticed now, and this now was him talking in 1973, he's mostly talking about his brother, who uh, also worked on weather technology, seeding clouds with silver iodide to make it rain. And, yeah, he's talking about how his scientist brother... You know, he said, oh, I, I'm working on this, and there's no way it can be used for military. But sure enough, it was the U.S. military was using it in Indochina for nefarious purposes. And so, yeah, so Vonnegut talked about witnessing that change of, like, well, scientists, people for scientific progress can't pretend that there aren't immediate human consequences when there's just been one war after another that makes it worse and worse. I mean, I, I've met a lot of most of the scientists I've met. Not most, but I've met a lot of scientists or people that work in the scientific research field that that are almost apolitical and they think that that's a thing that you can do in a society where you're governed by policies made by yeah. people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, I was in physics research uh, in grad school and at UC San Diego, there's definitely a big pacifist crew, but I just remember the more I learned about the history of the relationship between scientific research, fundamental scientific research, and the U.S. military is just so awful. It's so bad. Hey, hey, this is Moses with a message from the editing bay as I'm putting together the episode. First, I'd like to apologize for my microphone this week. It, uh, I misplaced my old one, my regular one, and this one wasn't quite as good as you can tell. So please forgive me. Uh, I hope it never happens again. If it does, let's say that I owe everybody, that's right, all of our listeners, an ice cream cone. Feel free to email with your favorite ice cream flavor. I'll see what I can whip up. And I'd also like to tell a story related to the scientists' responsibility towards humanity. I told this while we were recording it, but it got garbled, so I'm re-recording it now. And it is uh, the story of the development of nuclear power in America. So after World War II, after the Manhattan Project to make a bomb using nuclear fission, there was still much research to be done to make a power reactor, generate electricity, you know, use it for good, not evil. So that uh, scientific research was done for the next few decades, and, you know, still today, of course, at national labs all over the country. And one of the centers of that was Oak Ridge National Laboratory, and so the director, after World War II, the director of this nuclear research project at Oak Ridge uh, was named Alvin Weinberg. So he was kind of the scientific head of the, the program to try to design the best, you know, most efficient, most uh, safe uh, nuclear reactor. But he still had to report to a U.S. Navy admiral named Hyman Rickover. So the whole project was still under military purview and funding. And so, uh, as the story goes, one day, Weinberg had to make this decision of what should the next step in nuclear research be. 
because uh, there were several viable up, uh, paths. The uranium reactors, which is ha- had been studied so far, or thorium was another viable reactor material. There are some differences between a, you know a uranium reactor and a thorium reactor. One of the biggest ones is that the uranium reaction's byproducts is plutonium, uh, and that's a pretty volatile material. It's 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 nuclear waste. It stays radioactive for a long time. Thorium reactors don't have plutonium or nearly as much as a waste product. Uh, it's also much. You can make a thorium reactor that doesn't melt down. Like the risk of meltdown is orders of magnitude smaller than for a uranium reactor. It's, the thorium reactors all have sl- slightly lower power. They did at the time of um, at this research. But anyway, Weinberg presented these two options to the Navy Admiral, military man, Rickover, who pretty much made the decision to go with the uranium reactors because you can make bombs out of plutonium, but you can't make it out of thorium. So it was this military decision that determined the course of nuclear development for the rest of, you know, history. And maybe it was a little more nuanced, but it sounds a lot like it was just one guy deciding that yeah, we need to be able to have weapons that kill people, so let's stick with that one. Uh, so that makes me pretty mad every day, every time I think about it. Elevates my heart rate and blood pressure, and now uh, you get to know it too. Enjoy. Anyway, back to some music. I think it's interesting because he went, like, as an undergrad before he went to World War II, he went into, like, chemistry partially because his brother was, like, in science and his family thought, like, this is how you do something practical that makes money. Um, and he, so he had that scientific background but did not particularly like chemistry. And then I don't think I'd known this about Vonnegut before I was reading up a little bit for the episode, but he then went to University of Chicago to get a master's degree in anthropology and completed the whole thing but didn't get a degree because his thesis, uh, which was on like the ghost dance, was unanimously rejected. And then he said, he's just like, okay, well, goodbye. Uh, I guess I don't have a master's degree in anthropology. Um, and he's from a but, generation where that's fine. You can just go get a job <laughs> and a house yeah. and a family and your wife doesn't have to work. <laughs> Oh, I mean, Sorry. You can't do am that. I bitter? <laughs> no. Yeah, I mean, you can't do that with a master's degree in anthropology now. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I am very curious whether, like, whether that thesis still exists somewhere, and if it actually is that bad, or if it was just too radical for its time. Yeah. That's a good question. I mean, I know once they're published, they ha- they're, like, stored in the library of your yeah, school. So- but if it wasn't published because it was rejected. If you have an original copy of Kurt Vonnegut's uh, unaccept- <laughs> unaccepted uh, anthropology master's degree, email us at gmail.com. You can read my really thesis. crap thesis. <laughs> you go to Pratt. <laughs> Why did I get a master's degree? <laughs> I pick up people's trash for a living. (laughs) (laughs) That's not an exaggeration. (laughs) Uh, Let's move on to Galapagos, shall we? Or shall we not? Okay. 
yeah, I guess we've talked about all the short stories, at least briefly. Yeah. But yeah, they all feel like they're definitely... They feel like 50s, semi-pulpy uh, sci-fi short stories, but you definitely have like the kernel of who Vonnegut would develop into. Galapagos is a lovely book. Does anybody know when it was published? 85, and it's set in 86. Okay. Back cover synopsis. All right. Galapagos takes the reader back one million years to AD 1986. A simple vacation cruise suddenly becomes an evolutionary journey. Thanks to an apocalypse, a small group of survivors stranded on the Galapagos Islands are about to become the progenitors of a brave, new, and totally different human race. In this inimitable novel, America's master satirist looks at our world and shows us all that it is sadly, madly awry. And all that is worth saving. It is... One of my favorite books of all time. Because it's got farting people seals. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's the one. That's the one. One of the things I remember about the book is that in a million years of evolution, you know, humans become the developed flippers and stuff. Uh, But one thing that stays the same is that farts are still funny. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) To humans in one million years. That's some good sci fi. What? Is it weird that it's one of my all time favorite books? No, no. I just want to know. Tell me more about why. I think because I read it at a time that was very, like, so it it has, like, an emotional connection. It's not just, like, a book I really like. I, I used it, I found, like, a really pulpy hardcover version at, like, a thrift store while I was traveling in Canada, or Alaska, I think. And um, I used it as, like, my notebook for people to write their names and numbers you know when you, you know if you've ever just like bought a one-way ticket and met people you <laughs> just backpacking across canada <laughs> anyway you really find yourself yeah you really find yourself in um in edmonton edmonton <laughs> prince rupert all right anyway uh the, people there's like a lot of notes people like oh so nice meeting you i hope we stay together forever whenever we meet each other yeah anyway that's why i think Aww. it has a emotional Sweet. connection to me yeah it's also a fun book. And it's Kurt Vonnegut. I don't think... Yeah. Have you ever read something by Kurt Vonnegut and you're like, hard pass on this one? <laughs> it's, got, it's got at least a few good good jokes, good lines. Farting people seals. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what... Sort of what makes Vonnegut Vonnegut is his combination of this sort of Midwestern Eugene Debs loving uh, <laughs> like idealism the Vonnegut of that quote that you see a lot about, like, you've got to be kind because everyone you meet is uh, something, something, (laughs) having a hard time, whatever it is. Um, And at the same time, he's this, like, like, deeply pessimistic guy who probably has post-traumatic stress disorder and survivor's guilt from seeing mm-hmm. horrible things in World War II and who attempted yeah, suicide multiple about... times. Right. Yeah, he's yeah. O- he was always open about his depression and yeah. mental health. Yeah, so in, in Galapagos, you get, like, both of those things sort of fused into one with the story where, like, humanity would only be, is only really redeemable if it, if, like, a million years of evolution makes our brains smaller so that the only thing we can do is just hang out and eat fish. Um, Sounds like a great life. 
See, in that way, like, it feels more pessimistic than any of his earlier books. It is a very pessimistic future. Like, a lot of people, a lot of times a sci-fi writer is writing a million years from now, and it's this crazy technology. The world is insane. The culture. Yeah, right. We're in the cosmos. We've galaxy spanning. No, we we stayed on Earth and devolved. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, most of the people in the story are not particularly good people. (laughs) No. (laughs) They remind me of the humans in, (laughs) we're gonna reference this movie one more time on this show, but (laughs) WALL-E. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How many times are we gonna talk about WALL-E on this show? I don't know. How many times are you gonna bring up (laughs) WALL-E? Um... <laughs> I am not the only one bringing up Wally. Acting like I'm the only rube. <laughs> I'm going to have to do an audit of our previous episodes. <laughs> uh, you will. Exactly determine your Wally culpability. Yeah, um, next week our guest will be Brandon Bird, <laughs> head of Pixar. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know him? <laughs> that's how our guests work. <laughs> Are you a close personal friend? With <laughs> yeah, me and Brendan probably drive by his house. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, only Brendan's allowed on this show. <laughs> no, Brandon. <laughs> the the Darwin stuff again. This he has another quote in this same interview that. I really enjoyed where he says, uh, I think the interviewer asked him about Darwin, maybe he says, well, Darwin, even though he was right about a lot of stuff, I don't like what he's done to people. (laughs) That is, people take up his ideas and then call it social Darwinism and use that to say that, well, anyone who's poor deserves to be poor and anyone who's suffering deserves to be suffering and anyone who's successful deserves to remain successful, which just totally, and that's the American uh, psychology and his uh, experience is that that idea of uh, wherever you are, you clearly deserve to be exactly there. Instead, and he lived through depression, he knows, instead of seeing the patently obvious things that uh, awful things happen to everyone regardless, and no one de- no one deserves to suffer. If you see someone suffering, you should help them. Like, everyone deserves to be helped out of suffering, if possible. Yeah. So he writes about that <laughs> yeah, I mean that's what he, in in Cat's Cradle, that's what the the religion Bokanonism is all about. It's as well, uh, you just find a group of people that will help each other out. That's all you need. Any excuse at all will do to help someone else out. Uh, and that's his other quote in Rosewater: "Is uh, yeah. you know, we are what we pretend to be. So be careful what you pretend to be." Uh, and he says that that's what he learned from studying anthropology is that, well, humans will believe anything. So let's <laughs> choose something like kind of nice to believe in. If you, if there's no limit to what the human mind can believe, if it can be as detached from any reality, then let's choose a nice one. Mm-hmm. Choose a nice belief. Assign people random middle names uh, and then just say everyone with that middle name is same middle name as your family. You can reach out to them. Just like <laughs> the real family, maybe they'll say go to hell. But uh, at least you'll have someone you can reach out to. That's one possible idea. Form a connection over something. Apparently the anthropology department at the University of Chicago did not appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. I went to a lobster pound. I went to a lot of lost lobster pounds in the past two weeks. But I went to one and there was a guy wearing a shirt that said, Resist! 
socialism. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man. <laughs> people are yeah, that's what, bad. The same interview he said where he's saying, like, you know, people just need to find something to unite around. Uh, except in America, the things that people have been uniting around have been hatred of other races. But, oh, <laughs> turns out that's still a really good uniter. So let's not choose that one. Yeah, uh, that's yeah, that's the whole problem. Undoing all that. Mm-hmm. He, he wants people to unite around spaghetti. Just a spaghetti. <laughs> yeah, that was great. <laughs> that's that's as a great good quote. excuse for a religion as anyone <laughs> as anything. I mean, that's how my family does Judaism. It's just food. Spaghetti Judaism. Yeah. <laughs> just spaghetti Judaism. <laughs> it's like a spaghetti western. Are, we, are you a uh, reform or orthodox? <laughs> oh no, we're, uh, we're pasta. All dente. Yeah, we're pasta. We're all dente. <laughs> um, yeah, Galapagos does seem like a satirical attack on social Darwinism. It just takes these characters to the Galapagos um, to kind of do the voyage of the beagle in reverse right and has the limitations of the environment like boris like nope you can't you don't have hands anymore you have flippers because you (laughs) needed to fish so now you can't like compete and go to war with each other now you are pretty much equal so and you're happy about it so uh jokes on you so yeah in galapagos you see also the combination of like very simple prose and like technically very co- like complicated structure because yeah the narrator like the narrator of the book is a million years past like a million years in the future from 1986 um, yeah and that's because he's a ghost right he's a ghost who died um, building the boat that takes them to the Galapagos. But he's also the uh, like a Vietnam veteran son of Kilgore Trout, who's the science fiction writer who's kind of based on Kurt Vonnegut, who exists in Kurt Vonnegut's books. And at some point, and he's he's a ghost for a million years because at some point earlier, like Kilgore Trout appears to him in the blue tunnel that takes it to the afterlife and like tells him, come on in. Uh, and he refuses because there's more he wants to learn. He's a Kilgore Trout, notably unsuccessful author of paperback science fiction novels. Did you know, inspired by Vonnegut's uh, colleague, who's also an author named Theodore Sturgeon, because he thought it was oh, kind yeah. of amusing <laughs> that somebody could be named after a fish. Yeah, I mean, Kilgore Trout seems like uh, Vonnegut's sort of self-image of him himself as a 50s pulp sci-fi writer like Kilgore Trout is just Kurt Vonnegut if like success had never happened like Mm -hmm. if Cat's Cradle and Slaughterhouse-Five particularly just never kind of made him this Iowa workshop writer celebrity it's so funny in in Slaughterhouse-Five the scenes with Kilgore Trout because so the main character in Slaughterhouse-Five Billy Pilgrim is in the hospital and he reads all the Kilgore Trout novels and says they're amazing and then years later, he runs into Kilgore Trout, who is managing a paper delivery route, and he's yelling at a bunch of 10-year-olds. And then Billy Pilgrim <laughs> recognizes him and says, oh my god, you're Kilgore Trout. And he's like, what? Who the hell are you? <laughs> uh, and immediately, and then Kilgore immediately says, oh wait, this guy has money. I'm your friend now. Take him <laughs> to your parties. Uh, and he's just such a 
a jerk, and the scene of Kilgore Trout at this party with a bunch of optometrists is just so funny. And that's how Vonnegut sees himself. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if this is in the novel, but in the film adaptation of Breakfast of Champions, there's a scene where a Kilgore Trout is basically going to a some literary festival that's going to recognize him in the middle of Iowa. Or Ohio? Ohio. And he, like, hitchhikes with a trucker um, to get there. And the trucker has read one of his short stories. And at first, he's kind of impressed. Like, oh, somebody's actually read my stuff. But before revealing that he's the author, the trucker's like, why would anyone read that kind of nonsense (laughs) if they didn't have to? (laughs) I think I found some clip. Who plays him in the movie? It's Albert Finney playing Coco Trout, who meets, um, like, the main character. Yeah, is this um, car salesman played by Bruce Willis. Yeah. Who (laughs) finds this Coco Trout work that, like, tells the reader that they are the creator of the universe. Yeah. Uh, And Bruce Willis' car salesman character believes that is about him specifically. Right. Um, Which it is, because he is a Coco Trout. Well, he's a Kurt Vonnegut character in that book, because in that book, I believe both Kilgore Trout and Kurt Vonnegut as himself, as the author yeah. of the work, both appear. Yeah. Yeah, that he, he comes in and sets Kilgore Trout free. He says, I'm sorry for uh, making you such a jackass in all my novels, so uh, I will cure your phlebitis and give you a Nobel Prize, and now I'll never use you in another book again, I promise. Which he totally... Uh, Reneges on the promise? Yeah, by including him in yeah. Galapagos. Got him. Trout fished again. <laughs> <laughs> no! Uh, can Trout fished again be the name of this episode? Uh, <laughs> no. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> it's two to one. You're outvoted, Moses. Okay. I accept. Yeah. I don't know. I might recommend Breakfast of Champions. Um, it's from 1999, but it feels like it's from the 80s. Oh, the movie. Yeah. It's from 1999, but it feels like it's from the late 80s. Sort of almost feels like um, Terry Gilliam's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas mixed with Schizopolis by uh, Steven Soderbergh, but with like TV movie production values. It's an odd Bruce Willis performance. It's a crazy Nick Nolte performance. <laughs> uh, yeah, Albert Finney's a good Kilgore Trout. Uh, it's zany. I don't know how... Bruce Willis' passion projects are my favorite Bruce Willis films. Well, you should watch oh. Breakfast of Champions. <laughs> Does uh, uh, Death Becomes Her count as a Bruce Willis passion project? I'll, sure, that's a great movie. Death great Becomes movie. Her, uh, Hudson Hawk. Who is oh, it? I, is Breakfast of Champions a, a, a TV movie or not? It, no, I think it was theatrically released. It just, yeah, it was uh, a movie movie. When I don't know the quality of it makes it look like it doesn't look that much better than Harrison Bertrand. Oh yeah, I should uh, also wanted to bring up the Between Time and Timbuktu public access movie that was made about kind of a, yeah a hodgepodge of of Vonnegut stories, awesome. and it's you could. I think you can only find like a uh, terrible VHS rip, so it's kind of hard to watch. 
So the, the premise is that uh, a guy, a random nobody, gets selected uh, at random to go into space and get sent into the Chronosynclastic Infundibulum, which is a uh, funny sci-fi plot device that was in the Sirens of Titan. It's just a crazy time warp. So they throw him in there, and then he gets pretty much thrown around between different Vonnegut short story worlds. And the funniest part of the movie, though, it turns out, is uh, they get these these two old, this comedy duo, uh, Bob and Ray. I never heard of him. I looked them up, but they were like comedians in the 50s on radio and TV. And they play just two announcers who are an- announcing the broadcast of the space launch. And the funniest bits, and they're, they're seasoned improvisers. And the funniest bits are just these two old guys, these like comedy legends improvising as, you know, an ex-astronaut and a news broadcaster and just going back and forth saying dumb stuff to each other. <laughs> uh, totally independent of all the Vonnegut stuff in the movie. Like, clearly they got these guys at the last minute to tell, like, tie all the little vignettes together. It's just so funny. They just go back and forth where the guy says, now you're famous for saying that Mars was a lot like your driveway. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's true, but what nobody follows up and asks me about is that my driveway is red. I feel like people read So that part's worth watching. Yeah, I think that's the thing about adapting Vonnegut, because so many people like him, you can get uh, actors way above your production yeah. uh, budget. You're listening to the podcast edit of Last Refuge of the Incompetent. If you would like to listen to the full show with all the music kept in, check out our Mixcloud. Go to lastrefugepod.com for more information. Enjoy the rest of the show! Alright! Funky, funky cuppeteers! Fucking time, Cuppeteers! Thanks for listening to this episode of, of Fucking Time Cuppeteer Station. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're keeping this outro in, baby. This is the best one I've ever done. Our listeners, yeah, you all put you. Can I just can I complain for a second? You all, you guys put this all on me, so I am going to go and run with it. Okay, this is yeah, Fucking Time Cuppeteers. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Oh, fuck it, time, commenters. Mr. Dabalina, Mr. Bob Dabalina. <laughs> uh, what's next week's theme, Ted? What is it? Uh, we're going to be looking at fiction from uh, the Warsaw Pact or Eastern Bloc. Uh, a lot of Stanislaw Lem, um, but also some Soviet authors. Some Soviet film, maybe Hungarian as well. Czech, even, maybe. Ooh. I, I'm compiling a list. I'm checking it twice. Ooh. And maybe we'll watch a few of them. You're checking it twice? No, no, no. You yeah. don't need that. <laughs> awesome. uh, did I ruin it? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, have care. you ever read Solaris? Any, you two? That's on the list, right? It's on no, the list. I, I've seen I don't the know. film. But sorry. I'm, I'm going to try and power read. What are we reading? I only have a week. 
Eh, there's some short stories also. Solaris, I'll say, though, that the book... The Tarkovsky movie is great. I really enjoyed it. And the book I also enjoyed, but the book has a lot more about, like, a really dry satire of scientific research. Like, there are entire chapters of the book that is, like, a literature review of all the papers, the conflicting scientific papers about this alien planet. Mm. Uh, And it's not very funny unless uh, you're me and you (laughs) have done scientific research for five years and you strongly relate to trying to resolve hundreds of conflicting papers. Mm. So, to any other grad students out there, read Solaris. (laughs) Stanislaw Lem gets it. (laughs) Yeah, I've always, I mean, I like the film. I've been curious about the differences with the the book. So, I'd, yeah, I'd like to try to read that in Futurological Congress and Roadside Picnic. We'll see. It's a hefty amount of books to read in, in a week, Ted. We'll see what, where we get. I uh, will do my best. <laughs> Funky time, competeers. I will do my best for you. I'm gonna use that all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> Check uh, out our website, folks. We post. I I make. I do a very good job of making sure there are great articles yeah. linked on that Gull website. Puts in so much more work than Ted and, and me, which is shameful. <laughs> like we're gross slugs compared to Gull. I think Ted puts in a lot of work. Uh, all right. <laughs> that was a burn on Moses. Lastrefugepod.com. Email us the last refuge of the incompetent at gmail.com. Oh, that's Moses's job. No, no, you nailed it. I did. Thank you. We still, Um, we still, nobody has ever emailed us, so we still don't know if there are any funky competitors. Yeah, Um, we have, I have made pleas, and you guys are ignoring me. Also, I'm running out of close personal friends that I can bring onto this show, so if you are not a crazy person, (laughs) uh, send us an email. Just, I am not a crazy person in the subject line. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Leave us a voicemail, 805-253-3091, 805-253-3091. And again, if you have a copy of uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Master's Thesis, please send it our way. Yeah, so many requests that have not been fulfilled. Uh, We still don't know who does the voice in Barbarella. We uh, have not heard from a 140-year-old man yet. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. I, I, th- I think we have terrible listeners, actually. Um, <laughs> you guys are just not putting in the work. Got to shape None up. of them are 140. Mm-hmm. None of them were Vonnegut's advisor. <laughs> Ugh. Why yeah. bother even making a podcast? <laughs> You're not going to reach those. None of them are Brandon Bird. <laughs> uh, hey, Moses. Yeah. It's time to sign off. Take, take it. Sign off. Sleep well, funky time and competitors. <laughs>